Good evening, everyone. We are coming to the end of the beautiful season of Advent. So tonight we're going to put a bow on it, as it were. Wrap it up. Advent is done as of, well, uh, tomorrow evening. Actually, tomorrow is Christmas Eve, the vigil of the nativity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to talk about um, some of the things that have gone on in, in Advent over the past week and uh, some things you might have missed. Uh, I've been doing a... Uh, all the last seven days, the whole week, uh, a little bit of an overview of the O antiphons. If you don't know what those are about, we'll talk about that. What do we have left in these, uh, well, last few hours, last 24 hours of, of Advent? And then mainly we're going to look into the beginning of the season of Christmas. And I do mean the season of Christmas tonight, because whereas everyone else has kind of been celebrating the Christmas season since, well, before Halloween... Uh, the official Christmas season, at least for Catholics, uh, begins tomorrow night. So we are just beginning the season of Christmas, which we'll talk about how long that goes. How long is Christmas? Uh, and some of the things we have to look forward to. One of the things I'm looking forward to is your, your questions. So uh, uh, it, it's live, which means you can actually interact. If you ask me a question, I will actually see it on my screen and I will answer it. All eight of you that are watching right now. Uh, I would be happy to take your questions and answer those. Um, that's what a live show is about. Thanks, John Anthony. Watching on TV. Good. Um, Facebook only allows a, a certain resolution. I'm at like 720, I think, here. Uh, so it's not full HD. So I hope it still looks good on your uh, TV there, John. Appreciate that. Uh, and then I'll, I'll put it up on, on YouTube in a full HD after I am uh, done here. So if uh, you need a higher resolution, you can get that and ask Facebook to allow us to stream higher. Speaking of some online uh, housekeeping there, uh, if you have not liked the Sean the Baptist page on Facebook, some of you are followers, but you have not liked it, uh, click on like. I, I like it when people like me. Then I can, I can see uh, what, is, what is going on. John's got me on Apple TV. That's very nice. I appreciate that. Um, I'm able to, to kind of keep track of how people are watching that way and make sure that you get on the, the invite. Uh, for instance, last week, in, in case you missed it, I did a, a special Sean the Baptist Live on Thursday. Uh, so if you normally turn in on Wednesday evenings, if, if you had liked the page, you would have gotten a little notification that uh, I did a special event here at uh, the parish, at uh, St. Patrick's Parish in Kansas City, Kansas, where I'm at. I took some of those, uh, well, Christmas carols that, that we all sing, you know, uh, now in flesh appearing, hail the incarnate deity. What the heck is that about? Um, yeah, we sing that stuff all the time. Yule logs burning in fireplaces and donning our gay apparel and, and such. Um, what is all that about? Well, I, I went ahead and I, I did a little hour-long session here in the church. We, we had a, a nice uh, socially distant crowd, really, of, of people in the church. And as far as I know, everyone's healthy. But I, I recorded that. So uh, you can... Uh, Grab that uh, from last week's Sean the Baptist. Uh, by the way, it, it is in a series on, on Facebook here. So if you go to the Sean the Baptist page on Facebook, you can see that there are a couple series. There's the morning message, and then there's the Sean the Baptist Live series. Uh, so you can go back and get previous episodes, as it were. I wish I could show them in reverse order, uh, because you'd, you'd probably want to see the last one first. But anyway, scroll down, see the last one, share it around. Uh, it is great to share this stuff. So if you've got friends and you think, wow, that Christmas Carol thing I did, just click share and send it to your friends. That's kind of how the social part of social media works and allows other people 
uh, who maybe you're not uh, particularly interested in evangelizing and coming up with like, oh, what would I say to evangelize? Well, let Sean the Baptist be your friend here. Just uh, click share on Facebook or YouTube. Go out and, and like or follow my YouTube channel. And if you want to know how to get to all that, uh, just go to seanthebaptist.org, S-H-A-N-W, S-H-A-W-N, thebaptist.org. And uh, there are little buttons at the top, whether you're on mobile or the desktop, to just click on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. I got my Instagram account out there. I even got my Flickr page with some of my, my photos. Go uh, check out the Cherry Blossom Festival from D.C. on my Flickr page. You know, all kinds of stuff out there. So realize some people get their, their media in different ways. So feel free to, to check that out. Let me know what you think. Let me know what works for you because uh, I'm happy to communicate with you in a way that you like to be communicated with. That's a little uh, tip for all relationships. Uh, communicate with people in a way that they would like to receive your communication. Especially recommend that for marriage. Good tip to everybody out there. All right, so as we, uh, we get into tonight, um, we do have uh, the, the ending of the season of Advent. So let me tell you a little bit about um, what's been going on here the, the last week. I, I mentioned, of course, the, that little bit about the O antiphons, and I won't go into great detail there because hopefully you have uh, followed along and you can see what's going on uh, on the uh, Sean the Baptist page there. But what are O antiphons? Well, uh, I've mentioned on here before the Liturgy of the Hours or the Divine Office. Uh, this is another part of the liturgy that the, the priests pray uh, throughout uh, the day at the various hours to sanctify the whole day. And during the season of Advent, the uh, prayer of Vespers, so that's evening prayer, uh, every night at evening prayer, the, the church prays the Magnificat, the beautiful prayer of our Blessed Mother Mary, where she says that her soul magnifies the Lord. Well, during the last seven days, uh, before the Vigil of Christmas. We have a special little antiphon that goes before and after that uh, gives a special title of the Messiah. And they all start with O something. So like O wisdom. Okay. Um, o key of David. O rising dawn. And finally, today actually on the, the 23rd of December, O Emmanuel. So you will recognize probably some of this from O come, O come, Emmanuel probably the only Advent song that you you know. The verses actually come from these famous O antiphons. And so I, I went through each one a little bit about the, the title of the Messiah and his expected coming and what we are, are looking for. And as a little bit of a uh, tidbit, if you take the first letter of each one and work it backwards, so Emmanuel, E, you know, Rex Gentium, Oriens, Clavis David, Key of David. Um, uh, what am I missing? Uh, Radix, the essay, the, the root of, of Jesse. Adonai, the Hebrew name, Lord, for the name of God. And Sapientia. Now that's the reverse order, but if you take it in that order, you get E-R-O-C-R-A-S. Arrow means I will be, I will. And C-R-A-S is the word for tomorrow, cross. So arrow, cross, I, I will. I will come tomorrow. And what do you know? Tomorrow is Christmas Eve. So it's been a little bit of an exciting journey. So if you haven't followed that, go check out the uh, the O antiphons there uh, leading up to uh, Christmas Eve tomorrow. So tomorrow is the the vigil of Christmas, the last day of the Advent season. Let me tell you a little bit about a, a vigil. So uh, we probably these days think of a vigil as, as beginning in the evening. Uh, you know, like a, a, an evening sort of watch, like Vespers that I was talking about. 
because uh, we, of course, get the ability to fulfill our obligation to attend Mass beginning the evening before a major feast day. And that would be true of Christmas if the uh, obligation were not dispensed, as it is in many places this year because of COVID. Um, but really, the, the tradition of a, a vigil, it, it does mean a night watch. Uh, but in the history, the, the church has normally kept an entire day of preparation for a major feast. And the whole day was called uh, the vigil. Um, and it would involve uh, certainly extra prayer, but also fast and abstinence. So tomorrow is the, the vigil of the Nativity of the Lord, and in the traditional uh, meaning before Vatican II kind of law of the church, it was a day of fasting and abstinence. So just like we know for like Good Friday, where you have one main meal and maybe two smaller meals that don't eat the main meal and you don't have meat, well, that applied to Christmas Eve, the vigil of the Nativity of the Lord. And back in the day, of course, we didn't have uh, the ability to start Mass before midnight. There was no uh, evening Mass. I actually wrote my, my canon law dissertation on, on this very topic for my, my license in canon law, uh, the origin of evening Masses. It's actually pretty late. Uh, before, Mass couldn't uh, uh, start before midnight, and that was even an exception. And then it had to be done before noon. So the earliest you could celebrate any Mass of Christmas was midnight. And that's how we get the tradition of the Christmas Midnight Mass. You just There was no Christmas Mass before that. The Mass of December 24th uh, was a penitential celebration, as if there is such a thing as a penitential celebration, uh, but you wore purple. Uh, it was still Advent. There was a day of fasting. It was, you know, somewhat like um, uh, the, the way that we would prepare that you fast before the feast and then that prepares you and then the next day you feast. So that's where the tradition of Midnight Mass came, because that was the earliest you could celebrate Christmas. So the first Mass of Christmas was Midnight Mass. Uh, now it's kind of a bit of a uh, funny kind of thing to ask, well, when is your Midnight Mass? That used to be a stupid question. Now not so much, because quite frankly, our Midnight Mass is at 10 p.m. on Christmas Eve. Because now we can anticipate a feast day, as it were, and, and celebrate a Mass of the feast day actually on the evening before. And we, we do this every weekend uh, when on 4 p.m. and later on Saturday we use the, the Mass of the Sunday. Uh, and you can fulfill your obligation then. There are actually three uh, proper Masses of Christmas Day, as there's always been. Uh, mass at midnight, uh, Mass at dawn, and Mass during the day. And then since Vatican II, we've also added the the mass uh, of the the vigil of the nativity, and not in a a penitential sort of sense, but as a an actual vigil mass that begins Christmas. So maybe let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the distinctions between those those masses, and feel free to pop in with a question if you've got them here. But the vigil mass, so this would be Christmas Eve evening. And it's considered the first Mass of Christmas, so now we we wear white, um, and uh, it has its each of these four Masses actually has their own set of readings. Now, most of the time, you probably don't hear the the individual different readings because there is an option that you can use any of the sets of readings at any of the four Masses. So typically, if it's Christmas Eve, even though it's technically not midnight, it's maybe not even. Uh, late enough, it's probably a vigil time. The the readings for the vigil 
um, are a little bit lesser known and maybe a little bit lesser appreciated because the gospel for the vigil mass for Christmas is actually the, the very beginning of the gospel of Matthew, and, and that is the genealogy of Jesus. So, um, you know, for, for want of most people not hearing it, or, or maybe where you're at, you, you would get a chance to hear the, the genealogy reading of Jesus. Let me just uh, give you a little insight into what the, the whole genealogy thing is about. Why use the, the genealogy of Jesus at all? Well, here's the thing. All right, so Matthew is, is writing to a, a Jewish audience. Luke also has a, a genealogy of Jesus, but he's writing to a little bit different audience. So Matthew begins his genealogy by showing that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. So as far back as Matthew goes is Abraham. Why did you do this? Well, because Abraham is the first monotheistic Jew. God reveals himself to Abraham and shows that he's chosen. And so to be Jewish is to be descended from Abraham, to be a child of Abraham. Uh, and so Matthew will show how, okay, well, Jesus is descended from Abraham. So he gives all of the ancestors from Abraham up to David. And then David is, of course, kind of the, the hinge linchpin of, of all of Jewish history. He is the, the great king that is the most famous, most best known a king that God actually makes a, a sacred agreement, a covenant with, uh, to say that your, your kingship, your, your dynasty, will go on forever. Uh, and that's a, that's a pretty amazing thing for God to say, especially since it, it looks like it failed. Uh, because eventually, David is not only the best king, he's, he's really the last really, really great king. Most of the other kings that follow David are actually terrible. I mean, bordering somewhere between bad and terrible. There are a few exceptions, Josiah and Hezekiah. Uh, but for the most part, they're bad, and the whole thing just blows up and falls apart. And so that's why Matthew traces his genealogy then from David until the Babylonian exile. And if you don't know what the Babylonian exile is, two weeks ago, Santa Baby Lawn was the Sean the Baptist live show. You got to go back and check that out because it's all about the Babylonian exile. It's what Advent is all about, really. So... 14 generations from David to the Babylonian exile, and then from the Babylonian exile to the coming of Jesus, 14 generations. Now let's uh, just put a bow on it by saying, uh, Matthew, in case you missed it, says 14, and then there's 14, and then there's 14. And if there's one thing you gotta get, like if you hear this genealogy reading at the vigil mass, because the priest does it, and I, I've done it, so it's it's not like you can't do it. Um, 14, 14, 14. Here's the whole summary of the genealogy. All right, numbers obviously mean things uh, in scripture and especially in the Old Testament. Um, and there was no way to say good, better, and best, comparative adjectives we call those. Um, so if something is good, you would say it's good. If, if something is better, you would say it's good, good. So you, you'd repeat the adjective twice, good, good, that's, that's better. Uh, or if it's the best, you would say it's good, good, good. Three times, good, good, good. That's as, that's as good as it gets. You are 
superlative at at that point. Um, so 14, 14, 14 says you are the most 14 of everything. I'm like, okay, wow, nice, why that? Well, letters in Hebrew also stand for numbers because they don't have like a one, a two, and a three. They would use the first, second, and third letter of the alphabet. Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, and onward. Well, the sixth and fourth letters of the Hebrew alphabet then stand for the number four and six. Uh, so Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, Hey, and Wow. Yeah, there's a Hebrew letter called Wow or Vav. Why is that important? Because the name David in Hebrew, here's, here's the, if, you, if you've lost me, here it is. David in Hebrew is made up of three con- consonants, Daleth, Vav, and Daleth, kind of like D, V, and D. You add up that four, six, and four, you get 14. So long story short, the name of David, its numerological value is 14. So what Matthew is doing with that whole big genealogy is trying to tell you 14, 14, 14. David, David, David. Jesus is the most David of all Davids. You thought the whole line of David was gone? There is no king of David? Just hold on because a shoot shall sprout from the stump of Jesse, David's father, and the family tree of David will go on. And in fact, the Messiah comes from the line of David as foretold, and a great king is to be born. And that's what that whole genealogy is about. Now, there are a few other things, like there's some some wrinkles in the genealogy, like why are there why are there women mentioned? Uh, so there's there's Rahab and uh, Tamar and Ruth uh, and another woman who's not named, the wife of Uriah. That's Bathsheba, who David murders uh, her husband so that he can take over as his as her husband. Um, why why is that all in there? Well, because at the very end. Uh, there's one more wrinkle in the genealogy, and that is after all these so-and-so begets, so-and-so begets, so-and-so, you get the fact that, in fact, Joseph did not beget Jesus. Joseph, rather, is the husband of Mary, and of her was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Uh, So he kind of prepares you with those other women in the genealogy, because normally you wouldn't have women in a genealogy. He's saying, hey, here's Jesus's genealogy, uh, and there's just one little problem. Joseph isn't actually his father, so he's not actually in that whole genealogy. But don't worry, there's some other little problems. Look at these other women. So the fact that Mary is at the end of the genealogy, don't freak out. God does strange things with history, and he makes good uh, with the crooked lines of history, as we say. Jesus's genealogy is not perfect. It's it's a bit of a mess, as most families are. And Jesus comes from this messy, messy broken family tree, Okay, because he's coming to a bunch of people like us who are from messy, broken family trees. We're all a mess too. Uh, And Jesus comes to save us. So not such a bad thing. So uh, the reason you don't hear that reading very often at the vigil is because most people, when they come to Christmas Mass, and most people come at a vigil kind of hour, not at midnight, they want to hear the reading of readings. They want to hear the reading that they only hear once a year because they only come to Mass once a year on Christmas. Oh, wait, did I say that out loud? Uh, They want to hear, well, quite frankly, they want to hear Linus. They want to hear Linus from the the Peanuts, Charlie Brown Christmas. Um, 
we had that whole deal this year where Charlie Brown Christmas almost didn't make it. Yeah, like, uh, whatever, Disney or somebody bought the rights to Charlie Brown Christmas, uh, and um, they weren't going to show it. You're going to have to pay to see, uh, no, uh, Apple, I think, or, or somebody, somebody bought it. So you were going to get Charlie Brown Christmas for like the first time since 1965, um, and then PBS got uh, to, to show it. So I actually watched it with a, a family, shout out to the elders out there. Uh, with their cute uh, cute son, Michael, who was seeing it for the first time, and so that was wonderful. But um, I'm talking about the famous Linus moment. And for those that don't know, uh, Charlie Brown is, is trying to, well, get into the Christmas spirit. And uh, he's having a hard time, and um, it's gotten kind of commercial. Uh, even his own dog has entered a lights and display contest, and so it's pretty difficult. And finally, in a bit of exasperation, Charlie Brown just screams out, Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? And up steps Linus with his trusty little blanket. Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And he walked onto the stage. Lights, please. And I was I was quoting the lines by, by memory, and so it, it really impressed my, my friends that I was watching it with. But, yeah. Um... And he picks up from the reading from Midnight Mass. This is from the Gospel of Luke, the second chapter. Um, and uh, it, it picks up, um, there were shepherds in that region living in the fields and keeping watch by over their flocks by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid. And the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy that will be for all the people. And there it is, the money line for today in the city of David. David? Yeah, David. We just heard that part. That's why the genealogy does matter. In the city of David, a Savior has been born for you, who is Christ and Lord. And that's what Christmas is all about. And uh, there's a there's a neat little uh, thing when, when Linus is reading those lines, which, by the way, it's got to be like the greatest moment in television history, I think. Here on every secular public television network, uh, for a, a country that is, is founded on, on Christianity, what is the best proclamation of the gospel that we have that is publicly consumable in a way that people can get? It's a little cartoon character who gets on stage every year prior to Christmas and tells this story from Midnight Mass for everyone to hear it. it it's Linus. It's Linus in Charlie Brown Christmas. But here's something you may not realize. Linus, with his with his little blanket, you know, he never lets go of his blanket. So I, I told little Michaels, we're watching this. Now watch watch Linus with his blanket. And he knew, because he's seen other like Charlie Brown specials. He's like, yeah, I know his blanket. He never lets go of his blanket. You just watch. He's going to let go of his blanket for the first time ever in this, this episode. He's like, really? Yeah. And so we're watching for it. And of course, we know that Linus carries his blanket around because he's a little bit afraid. You know, it's like his little good luck thing, but also just his, his, his comfort blanket, you know? I mean, it's, yeah, it's fine. It's good. I mean, he's, he's the, the Peanuts characters are children, you know? So he carries around his little security blanket, we might call it. And um, he, he, of course, drags it on stage and he's given his little speech uh, you know, in the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. But the angel said to them, 
do not be afraid. And Linus drops his blanket. Right when he says, do not be afraid, Linus drops his blanket. Okay, if you haven't seen that, go back and go back and watch it again. Um, I'd love to kind of show the clip on here, but I, when you get like copyrighted kind of material, it gets a little dicey. Uh, so I, I don't want to potentially, you know, get Sean the Baptist Enterprises in any trouble. But you go back and watch that clip, and you'll see that Linus actually drops his blanket. So yeah, when the angel comes and says, "Don't be afraid," Linus is like, "Okay, I don't have to be afraid right now." And so Linus is just, he's telling the story from the gospel from 2,000 years ago, but he actually right at that moment as he's telling it, let's go of his blanket. I think that that's kind of a bit of, as a, a liturgist myself, that the liturgy is much more than about simply remembering events from 2,000 years ago. Those past events are meant to be made present to us right now in real time. So yeah, we're going to get together tomorrow night and we're going to remember what it was like on Christmas Eve 2,000 years ago. But it's not meant to just be a thinking thing. It's meant to, to make that event real. Because what happened 2,000 years ago? God became visible in the world as a little tiny baby, God in the flesh, incarnate. Carne in Latin is flesh, so incarnate means in the flesh. God became visible. He truly became Emmanuel, God with us, in a way that we could see him. Well, that's going to happen tomorrow night. It happens every day, but especially at every Mass. The priest is going to take bread and say, this is my body, using the very words of Jesus. And it happens. Just as when Mary said, let it be, and God came into her womb. Well, something even greater than that happens in the Eucharist because God doesn't just come into bread as God came into Mary. Bread actually becomes God. Every Mass, it's the greatest miracle that ever happens. It happens every day. So I think we take it for granted. But we don't have to think about what it would be like 2,000 years ago to have God become present in the world. It's going to happen again. It's going to happen tomorrow morning at 6.30 a.m. when I celebrate the Mass of Christmas Eve morning. And it's definitely going to happen tomorrow night when we all go to, to Mass. And this is my body. This is my blood. And Jesus is there, as sure as he was as a little baby in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. He is absolutely even more present, just under a different form, in the Eucharist. So no wonder Linus can, can drop his blanket, because it's not just a message that is about something that happened 2,000 years ago. Linus, 2,000 years later, <laughs> cartoonly speaking, is no longer afraid when he hears the message of the angels, that a savior has been born. Because it's not a savior that came 2,000 years ago to save those people way back then. It's a savior that comes right here and now to save us miserable sinners who sit in darkness and the shadow of death who need a savior right now. I need a savior every stinking day. And so praise God, we've got one. And he's gonna be born for us tomorrow night and on Christmas morning and every day because we need him every day. You know, sometimes our Protestant brothers and sisters are like, well, I, I don't need, you know, the, the Eucharist. I don't need confession because Jesus Christ died for me on Good Friday 2,000 years ago, and that took away my sins. Well, that event, the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus, gave the ability for our sins to be forgiven. But I sin every day, concretely, right here and now. I need some way to apply everything that Jesus did to me to my concrete situation right now. 
And, and that's where the whole sacramental life of the church comes in. Jesus left us that way. And so everything that the Christ child did for those who sat in darkness and saw a great light on that Christmas night 2,000 years ago, the Christ child does for us again tomorrow night. So maybe let, let that be your, your prayer as you attend Mass. I, I encourage you, come to Mass tomorrow with everything on your heart that has troubled you in 2020. You know, you've got all this stuff. Maybe maybe you're not even going to be able to be there. Maybe you're going to have to, to watch on the, the internet. All right. Well, especially uh, bring that. And if you can be in the physical presence in the church, every Mass, we should place on the altar everything that is hurting us, all of our desires, all our concerns. Um, I mentioned, you know, the, the Babylonian exile is really the key to the, the longing for the Messiah. All right, if you don't know anything about the Babylonian exile, shame on you for not watching the show two weeks ago. Go back and, and watch it. But nonetheless, even if you don't know about that, you know about your suffering. If, if I were to just say, imagine some way in which you are in exile right now and you feel far from home and you are down and out, all right? Picture that in your head and then now hear the, the beautiful words of, of the prophet Isaiah from Midnight Mass. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Upon those who dwelt in the land of gloom in 2020, a light has shone. Well, yeah, we need that. I mean, hear those words and I, I think you'll be able to pick up uh, a little bit about what this is all about. Can anybody tell me what Christmas is all about? Um, yeah, there's a reason why Linus goes right to the, the gospel of midnight mass. Uh, we sit in darkness. We are in great need. And we have a savior that will be born for us. And so no no doubt that's great news. Let me check on my, my comments here. I see Lisa on and, oh, Patricia Elder is on. So yeah, yay. Uh, hi to Michael. Uh, I, I really liked watching Charlie Brown with him. Uh, John Anthony says, our parish has on Christmas Eve 2 p.m. for elderly. 4, 6, and 10, and then 12 a.m. and 8 and 10 and noon in Spanish. Okay, so this is a, a bit of a strange year. Um, normally 4 p.m. would be the earliest that we would call it evening, uh, to be able to have evening mass, even for Christmas. Um, but this year, because of like social distancing and spacing, a lot of bishops have given permission to celebrate the, the vigil mass of Christmas, even as early as like 2 p.m. or something. So, um, check with your bishop there. That's probably all cool if your church is doing that. Normally we can't do that. Barb Chamberlain out in Topeka, yay, most pure to Mary. Um, connection with our own lives. Well, that's, uh, yeah, Barb is saying that she likes how I draw the connection with our own lives. Well, there, there's two ends to the liturgy. Uh, this, this is Vatican II and even earlier than that, but the glorification of God and the sanctification of his people. Those are the, the two main purposes of, of the liturgy. Um, so yeah, we're, we're there to glorify God and that is number one. And I think we lose that all the time in the liturgy today because we're thinking like, well, what can I do to make it interesting for me? How can I be entertained? Well, that is not the primary purpose of the liturgy. In fact, it's not even any purpose of the liturgy. Glorification of God. We worship God. Why? Because he told us to, and he told us how he wants it done. I mean, we wouldn't come up with the idea of sacrificing a lamb, yet alone the lamb of God. God said, this is what you do. Uh, so that's why we do it. But the glorification of his people. We are meant to also be led to glory by the worship of God. Uh, and for that, 
it, it really is meant to be uh, something that breaks into our life. I mean, I don't know, but how many of you are sitting out there right now saying, I hate 2020. I can't wait for it to be over. I don't know what to do. I, I am at the complete end of my rope. I am burnt out. I am tired. I mean, okay. This is what happened to me. This is 2020, like in a, a nutshell for my experience of it. Um, I, I was coming back from a meeting. I was happy. I was filled with God's grace about a month ago. Uh, and it was pouring down rain. And you know how long it's been since it's rain, really. So th there was a, someone had like plowed over a, a median where the road split. So there was like no sign. It's raining. I couldn't see Mark. So I too plowed. All right. Bumped over a median. No big deal. Well, then I find out my tire's flat. So I have to pull over in the middle of rain. I change my tires. I'm all cool. I'm like, look at me. I changed the tire. Yay. I'm not going to let this steal my Christmas joy. I'm like Charlie Brown. This is not going to ruin my Christmas or my advent change the tire, but I'll go get it taken care of the next day. Anyway, long story short, it went from I need a new tire, which is like a hundred some bucks to, oh, you need a new wheel too, which is like 500 more bucks. Finally got that after multiple times. Oh uh, yeah, your your strut is bent. You need a new one of those. Oh, and then you need a new knuckle thing. And then, oh, well this bent this panel. So you need a new one of the, all right, all right. This is an insurance claim. Long story short, a month later, I finally got my car back like two days ago. Like, well, at least it's all nice. So I was at I was at the mall shopping today. I know, I was wearing my mask, I was social distancing. I needed to get a few more things. Um, I come out of the mall, passenger side, crashed into by someone's door. Now, I, it looks worse than it is, but I mean, you gotta be kidding me. I just got everything fixed and I got my door dinged. Clearly it was so windy today. I think someone's door, they opened it a little bit. It just like blew and then wham. You would think they would leave me a note. Hey, sorry your car got dinged. Here's my contact info. No. So anyway, I'm a little down. I'm, I'm a little upset. Now there are way bigger problems than me getting my car dinged. But after everything I just went through for a month with my car and I am not losing my peace. I was very happy all through Advent. And then this just about blew me over the top. And you know what I did? I'm like, God, the heck? What are you doing up there, okay? I've recovered my piece now, basically, kind of, right? I'll get it fixed, or maybe I won't. Maybe I can just, I, I started to buff it out when I got home and I'm like, all right, it's maybe gonna be okay. And maybe there's someone they can get behind there and just like push out the little dent, I don't know. But anyway, we all got stuff like that, okay? Normally, it would not be that upsetting to me, but I've been through a lot, okay? So maybe you've been through a lot. Bring all that stuff to mass and say, Lord, I need a savior, okay? Um, yeah, I need saving, all right? We've all been in darkness, so offer that. Bring that to mass. Offer it with, with what's going on uh, at mass. That's a good thing to do, okay? Uh, so yeah, thanks for that, uh, and um, yes, John Anthony says, watch it on YouTube. You can, you can Google Charlie Brown Christmas, Linus. Uh, you know, you'll, you'll get it. Um, howdy to Joyce Grosko. And oh, there's Patricia. Michael loves telling people that Father Tunic watched Charlie Brown with us. I watched Charlie Brown every year. And this was the first, it was really the first time I got to watch it with someone who was watching it for the first time. Uh, so the fact that I have all the lines memorized actually seems pretty cool to a, a little kid. Um, yeah. 
Okay, so that's a, that's a little bit. So that the readings at midnight mass, that that beautiful reading from Isaiah, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Yeah, that people want that one. No one cares much about Titus for the second reading, but um, the grace of God has appeared, saving all. The word Jesus, by the way, means God saves or God's salvation. So there's a little a little tie in there. The appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right. Most people are like, um, wow, I really like that reading from Isaiah. People who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And then they don't remember much else uh, about it. But they do remember uh, perhaps um, the gospel then. Because the gospel is the famous Linus story about the the shepherds um, who uh, go and they... They, they meet the baby Jesus. So this is the money shot of the manger and their shepherds there. And notice in Luke's gospel, there are no kings. Uh, the, the kings are in Matthew and Matthew doesn't have the shepherds. So most of the time at Christmas, we take the two infancy narratives from Luke and Matthew and we kind of like shove it all together. Uh, I mentioned the nativity story movie. Um, yeah, the, the kings might not have got there for a year or, or more. We don't know for sure. Uh, but you got to have them all together. Uh, so there's this beautiful money shot of kings and shepherds and the star up above shining down in, in you know, speaking of which, okay, um, let's, uh, let's talk about the star here because I, I know uh, somebody was going to ask this question because we just had this whole Star of Bethlehem uh, event from this, um, this past week. Like, Father Sean, what is up with that? Um, so here's the deal. We have no official teaching in the church on what the star of Bethlehem was. Now, these scriptures are inerrant. So that means what they what they teach is true in the way that the sacred author intended us to interpret it. So we know that a, a star appeared. And, and so for instance, um, planets, so Saturn and Jupiter are planets, they're not stars. So a lot of people right away might say, well, you know, Jupiter and Saturn, that can't possibly be the star of Bethlehem because they're not stars. Well, here's a beautiful example where like historical, critical kind of approach to scriptures helps because we can look back and say, well, what did, what did Matthew mean when he said star? Well, planets would be called stars as well. In fact, they were called wandering stars. The word in Latin... Uh, to wander is actually planare. So planet, planet literally means wandering one. Planets, they referred to as wandering stars because they're stars that moved or wandered relative to all the other stars. So did they know that they're not really stars? Yes. Uh, and they called them planets, wandering stars. Okay. So yes, Matthew says a star appeared. Now, is this an actual star in the sky? We don't know, okay? So, um, Augustine, for instance, thought that any kind of natural explanation, like a conjunction of planets or a, a comet or a supernova, he thought this was all ridiculous. Uh, in fact, it's all just astrological, you know, paganism that the star of Bethlehem was actually a supernatural light that had no explanation in natural science that appeared to the Magi and guided them, you know, almost like uh, like uh, the column of fire appeared in the wilderness guiding Moses and the, the Israelites out across the Red Sea in the wilderness. Something like that. 
that it's a special supernatural light that appeared to the Magi to guide them and wasn't seen by others. Okay, that's what uh, Augustine thought. But now Origen, who's at a, a similar time, he thought, no, that there could be an astrological kind of interpretation. Well, I can tell you when, when I was growing up and I, I was an engineer, you know, I like science and it didn't take me very long. You know, anyone can kind of figure out. Um, you hear the, the, the story and we've got our manger scenes where like there's a star in the sky shining down and pointing out because the story says, you know, it guided them to the manger. And I think kids, when they first hear it, and a lot of adults even will think, well, a star, you know, was like so bright in the sky that it, it shone down like a, a spotlight on Bethlehem and, and, and the manger. And that's, that's how they knew where to go. Well, it doesn't take very long for a scientific person to look up and say, I don't know how a star in the sky could ever shine down to point out anything. I mean, what's a star over top of? Well, I mean, you could be on a, an, a line, an azimuth, towards a, a star, but it's it's not going to lead you to a, a specific place, yet alone a house. Um, so that can't be it. Um, and we know that, like, when the, the Magi arrive at the court of King Herod and say, hey, we saw his star, Herod doesn't even know what they're talking about. Like, what star? So if there were some big floodlight, you know, shining in the sky on a house in Bethlehem, Herod and everyone in Jerusalem would certainly have seen it. Uh, so it can't be something like that. But it, it could be something astrological, like a conjunction of, of planets. Um, there are things that it couldn't be, like a comet. Uh, comets don't behave the way the stars described uh, in, in the gospel. And comets were normally seen as omens of bad things, not good things. Um, but normally on something bad if a comet came, and they weren't referred to as stars. Um the star is described in the gospel. It starts in the east and it moves towards the west and, and then it, it disappears somehow. And then after they speak with Herod, it says they, they saw the star again and the star actually preceded them to Bethlehem and then it stopped. All right. Um, there's really, if there is a an astrological kind of explanation for this, the, the best one that, that I can see is is that, in fact, it, it, it might involve a conjunction of planets like Jupiter and Saturn. There's also a, a theory about uh, Jupiter and, and Venus, for instance. Um, but uh, can a star stop? Stars don't stop, do they? Well, of course, all the bodies in heaven are perpetually moving. But... From the, the standpoint of Earth, okay, everyone out to everyone went out to look at the close alignment of Jupiter and Saturn the other night. Okay, in effect, though, were, were Jupiter and Saturn anywhere near each other? No, they're millions of miles apart. Jupiter and Saturn just lined up so that when you view them from Earth, they they looked like they were close. In the same way, planets can actually look like they stop and actually move back. This is called retrograde motion. I won't go into all the science behind it, uh, but because the Earth is moving around the sun and the planets, Jupiter and Saturn, are moving around the sun, Jupiter can actually, at times, looks like it it stops and moves backward. So can a star stop? Yes, a, a wandering starry planet can actually seem to stop. Um, so best natural kind of explanation that I could see is that there's some kind of astrological sign, like for instance, Jupiter 
uh, is in fact the the most power. It means powerful father. The, it's the king kind of planet. Uh, Saturn kind of has a, a crown on it with its rings. Uh, and then there's the the king star, Regulus, which is an actual star. Uh, in about 2 BC or so, there was kind of a conjunction in Regulus. And um, yeah, so there, there are things that, for instance, based on, oh, it's in the, the constellation of Leo the lion, which is the symbol of the tribe of Judah. If you're a a magi who's who's looking up at the stars in the east, you might see something that says, oh, a great king has been born in the land of the lion, Judah. Therefore, we are going to go to the capital of Judah, which is Jerusalem, to find out where is the king. Now, that would fit with Matthew, who's who when they show up at his court, the magi are like, okay, where's the king? Well, if they were following a star that pointed out exactly where he's at, they should know, but they don't know. So this points to the idea that it's a kind of astrological conjunction of things. They know from the stars that a great king has been born in the land of the Jews. So they go where? To the capital city, to Jerusalem, because obviously that's where he's going to be, right? And they ask Herod, where is he? And they're like, where's who? Like the king, we saw a star. Herod didn't see it, not paying attention. All right. So he says, let's check the scriptures. And the scriptures say, oh, Bethlehem. So the, the Magi know enough about the Jews to know, well, it's, it's over in the West, it's Jerusalem, but they don't know the whole story. And so in the scriptures, it says it's actually Bethlehem. So what do they do? They head south towards Bethlehem. And it could be that because of retrograde motion of the planets, the conjunction, the Jupiter actually took off towards the south and stopped. Actually possible. It actually did that in, in 2 BC. So it could be. Uh, but from there, there's no way a star points out a particular house, so they would have to figure that out. But anyway, um, it was nice the other night. I knew that people were going to be disappointed, though, quite frankly, because everyone was thinking, oh, like Star of Bethlehem, if, if Jupiter and Saturn come together, oh my goodness, it's these two huge planets, and it's going to be super bright and amazing. I'm like, no, it's not. Um, they're not going even to, if, even if they're over top of each other, Saturn just isn't that bright. Uh, right now to look at that. I mean, Jupiter is going to be about as bright as Jupiter always is, and most people don't care about Jupiter. And quite frankly, if you check out Venus, the morning star, way more impressive. Venus is way brighter than both Saturn and Jupiter were together the other night. So I knew people were going to be disappointed, but it was nice to see them together. And it wasn't so much the visual sight as to know that it's been 800 years since Saturn and Jupiter appeared to be that close from Earth. So could it betoken something? Yeah, I don't know, maybe. To me, it said better go to confession uh, and you better get ready to meet Jesus. But uh, to me, getting out of bed in the morning is a, a good sign of that. So I, I take that every morning. Okay. So uh, that's a little bit on the whole star of Bethlehem thing. If you were disappointed, uh, yeah, you and a lot of other people that didn't know, uh, I love I love stars. So I, I knew what was going to happen uh, and how that was going to go. So that's a little bit about the, uh, the star of Bethlehem. All right. Uh, throw your questions out there. If you've got questions about the Bethlehem star or, or something like that. It, you don't have to believe a conjunction of planets. You don't have to believe any of that. You can believe that a, a supernatural light appeared to the Magi and guided them. Uh, that's what Augustine thought. Um, you know, but uh, just so you know, it could be something like that conjunction of planets. All right. I want to I wanna look now at, um, I, I should, just a quick bit about the other readings. So Dawn, um, there we get another reading uh, 
uh, from Isaiah, but not the famous one from Midnight Mass. Uh, the Gospel for the Mass at Dawn is, is about the shepherds. Uh, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem to see this thing that has taken place. And so they went. And so the shepherds come. That's the Mass at Dawn. And then there's Mass during the day. Um, and there uh, we get another reading that really um, it is, is one of my favorites. And I have, on a number of times on Christmas morning, used this reading. And that is the, the beginning of the Gospel of John, what is known as the prologue of the Gospel of John. This is the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, that is deep, deep theology. But what does this say to us? It's, it's what I've been saying in my little talks on the O Antiphons this week. Um, God was born in Bethlehem, okay? There are three persons in the Holy Trinity. Newsflash to those who might not know. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the Blessed Trinity. Three persons existing eternally, outside of time. They had no beginning. They will have no end. Uh, the second person of the Holy Trinity is the one who became man, who took on flesh, who became incarnate. Only one of the three persons did that. The Father didn't take on flesh. The Holy Spirit didn't take on flesh. The second person of the Holy Trinity took on flesh and received the name Jesus uh, at his circumcision eight days after his birth. But each of the three persons is equally God. So was God born? Yes. Did God die? Yes. Because of a theological concept we call the communication of idioms, that you can speak of God in human terms uh, when referring to his human nature. You can also reference him with regard to the Godhead. So God was born. Did God have a beginning? No. Uh, Mary is the mother of God. Did, did Mary give rise to the origin of the divinity? No. But she gave birth to a little baby who was God, so she's the mother of God. It's a lot of deep theology. John gets at all of this. In the beginning. When? The beginning. Was there time? No. God. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, all that. So that's that's the reading on Christmas Day, um, which if you go to Latin Mass, uh, shout out to all my uh, traditional Latin Mass attending people there. Um, uh, I, I like celebrating the Latin Mass. And so this reading from John, um, we read at every Mass. In fact, this is the end of every Mass. As we leave Mass... What are the words we hear? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the, the one that, the line that always gets me, um, he was the true light, which enlightens everyone. He was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world came to be through him, but the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, but his own people did not accept him. That's, that's just the warning that you can go to Mass every day uh, and Jesus will come to you because you're his own and you might not accept him. In fact, you might miss the whole thing. Uh, so we get ready to celebrate Christmas. Realize that we are celebrating an event that 2,000 years ago, most people missed it. Okay, now maybe you're not going to miss the fact that, you know, tomorrow night is Christmas Eve and the next day is Christmas Day. Probably most people in America will not miss that 
event or the fact that it's Christmas. But could you miss the coming of Christ, the way he'll come this year? Yeah, in fact, most people will. That is the great mystery of this. God spent over a thousand years preparing for the coming of the Messiah. A thousand years since King David, at least, he prepared for the coming of the Messiah. His chosen people, that was their mission. Be ready for the coming of the Messiah and announce him when he comes. Most of them missed it. In fact, Herod, the the king, when the Magi show up, they're like, he's here. The Messiah is here. Yay. And Herod's like, who? What? When? No, can't be. Give me a give me a Bible. Anybody got a Bible? Somebody? I, I mean, so there's great danger that especially in some of the uh, darkness that we're in right now, could we miss Christmas this year? Yeah, because we're going to be looking for the wrong thing. Don't look for God to make everything better. Don't look for God to eradicate COVID overnight. But will Jesus come? Absolutely, Jesus is going to come. He is definitely going to come. He will be born for us as sure as he was 2,000 years ago. But don't miss it because he may come as that uh, family member that you're missing, that you set up a Zoom call with to talk with you haven't seen in years. It may come in just the, the newborn baby that was, was born. I got a, a friend who just became a grandma yesterday evening. Uh, I had lunch with her in the afternoon, and then her little first grandchild was born uh, yesterday evening. Jesus will come like that. Maybe you got a loved one who's sick. I just uh, anointed someone and gave viaticum, the last Eucharist to, um, just a couple days ago, and she, she died yesterday. What a Christmas this will be for her. She stands before God now, and so we assist her with our prayers, and uh, God might come that way. He, your life might end before Christmas Eve Mass tomorrow or on Christmas Day. Jesus will come. Don't, don't miss how that happens, okay? Um, I mentioned the preparation for the coming of the Messiah, so I'm going to end uh, with this because I don't, I don't see any more questions. So I want to draw your attention to the way that Midnight Mass begins. So this is the Mass of Midnight, so not the, not the vigil, although you, you could do it before the vigil, but uh, I've, um, I want to draw your attention to something that's optional, so it might not be done. But um, the reading from the, the Roman Martyrology, I've mentioned it before in the context of the Liturgy of the Hours, that each day we, we read from the Martyrology, the, the saint of the day. Well, of course, on December 25th, the primary liturgical thing being celebrated is the birth of Jesus. So the Martyrology has a very beautiful entry where it places the birth of Jesus in history. And someone asked me the the other day, was Jesus born in year zero? Because like they put it together, like if BC is before Christ and AD is, you know, Anno Domini, the year of the Lord after that, was he born in year zero? Well, first of all, that's not how they told time back then. So when Jesus was born, they told time, uh, like civilly, probably according to the, the year of the reign of the current monarch, or in the case of Romans, how many years since the founding of the city of Rome. The Jews had their own calendar as to what month it would be. So no, we didn't have BC and AD. Uh, and if, if you do BC and AD, Jesus was probably born somewhere between like six and two BC. So yes, Jesus was born before Christ, calendarly speaking. But here's the proclamation of the birth of Christ from the martyrology. And it, it puts the, the birth of Jesus in history. And so if you get one thing from this martyrology, so maybe you'll hear it chanted before midnight mass and you'll think, oh, this is kind of weird. What is it? The birth of Jesus does not take place once upon a time in a land far, far away. 
Because if I start a story once upon a time, you know, in a land far, far away, you know, in a galaxy far, far away, we know this place doesn't exist. Uh, it's it's made up. Uh, and so this is a, a fairy tale we're about to talk. That is not how the birth of Jesus starts. Here's how the proclamation of the birth of Jesus starts. It starts a little vague. When ages beyond number had run their course from the creation of the world. So the creation of the world is an actual event, but it's that's when time began, so it, you can't pinpoint it. When God, in the beginning, created the heavens, the earth, for man his own likeness. When century upon century had passed, so actual concrete time, since the Almighty had set his bow in the clouds after the great flood as a sign of covenant and peace. Okay, so that's referring to who? Noah. So Jesus comes after Noah. We don't know how long after because we don't know exactly when Noah was. But we're getting into concrete time now. Noah's an actual person, not a made-up figure. Um, now we get time. In the 21st century, since Abraham, our father in faith, came out of Ur of the Chaldees. All right, that's actual concrete time. 21st century, 2100 years since Abraham. All right. In the 13th century, since the people of Israel were led by Moses in the exodus from Egypt. That's real concrete. We've got evidence of when that was. 1,300 years after the exodus from Egypt. Around the thousandth year since David was anointed king. Okay, remember I had said David became king in 1000 AD uh, or 1000 BC. If there's one date from the Old Testament you need to remember, that's an easy one. David, biggest, greatest king, 1000 BC. So there it is. 1000 years since David was anointed king. In the 65th week of the prophecy of Daniel. All right, I've mentioned this before, but Daniel prophesied that there would be 70 weeks of years. So 490 years from the time of his prophecy uh, un until the Messiah. Now that would be the public manifestation of the Messiah. So Jesus, say the 65th week, so there's, there's five more weeks of years. That would be 35 more years. Jesus dies, is it about 33 AD? So you put it all together. Um, the prophecy of Daniel is, is about up, okay? Um, when Jesus finally comes on the public stage, there are lots of people claiming to be the Messiah. Why? Because you're at the 70th week of the prophecy of Daniel. So what does this mean? In the 65th week of the prophecy of Daniel, that means we are five weeks of years prior to it being up, so that we are about 35 years prior well, that's 33 years approximately before G we're about year zero, in other words. Um, in the year 752, since the foundation of the city of Rome, okay, there, now we've got a, a secular date. This is, this is concrete. Uh, in the 42nd year of the reign of Caesar Octavian Augustus, okay, that's, that's how you tell time, from the foundation of the city of Rome in the, this year of the reign of the emperor. So when was Jesus born? Once upon a time? No. This, this specific time in history, at a date, under real secular people. Okay, so notice what this, this has done. It set the birth of Christ in religious time. So after Noah, after Abraham, after David. Okay, those are all religious things. But then we've got the, the 194th Olympiad. So that's Greek. Uh, the 752 years since the foundation of Rome in the 42nd year of the reign of Caesar Augustus. 
Okay, that sets it in secular time. So Jesus' birth is both religiously significant and secularly significant. The whole world being at peace. Then we get the money line, Jesus Christ, eternal God and son of the eternal father, desiring to consecrate the whole world by his most loving presence, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and when nine months had passed since his conception, was born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem of Judah, and was made man. Incarnatus est. Homo factus est. He was made man. The nativity of our Lord Jesus Christ according to the flesh. And that is how Midnight Mass starts. Isn't that just gorgeous? Um, that's just a little bit of a liturgical insight there. And uh, we'll let that be the, the end of Sean the Baptist Live tonight. Uh, because that's where you'll pick it up tomorrow night on Christmas Eve. Uh, we are waiting for the coming of God. We've been preparing for it all Advent. We want God to come. And whatever it takes for you to get in, in that mindset that you want God. Okay, I'm, I'm reminded of the, the people in Victory Square in, in Krakow and Poland uh, when, when John uh, Paul II comes uh, and they're all shouting, we want God. We want God. That's how it needs to be by tomorrow night. We, we've had all of Advent to do it, but if you're not quite there yet, whatever it takes by tomorrow evening for you to get to that point that you should be showing up to Mass saying, I want God. And yeah, for me, it's going to be thinking about all the, the stuff that's going on, the bad stuff, the difficult stuff, the, the unfulfilled things, the unresolved difficulties and conflicts, people you want to be reconciled with that won't talk to you. Bring all that tomorrow night. Pray for a Christmas miracle. I have been praying for a Christmas miracle. I've been praying this uh, prayer since since uh, the, the feast day of St. Andrew, where you pray 15 times a day, this prayer about Jesus' birth in the night. I'm like, yes, bring that. I want God, okay? And then be thankful because we, we've got God. He, it's not like we have to pretend that he's not here and he's coming tomorrow night. No, he's here. Uh, but tomorrow, through the magic of the liturgy, he'll come in a new special way. And I pray that whatever that is, that like Linus, you will know that that coming of Jesus into our darkness right here, right now, well, that is really what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And it's what it's about for you too. So I pray tomorrow that for you and your family, uh, the light may shine on your darkness. It's not going to maybe completely take away all the darkness. But even if you're in darkness, if you've got light, if you've got the Christ child with you, it's going to be okay, and you too can throw off your little blanket. This has been Sean the Baptist Live for this fourth week of Advent, the day before the eve of Christmas. Uh, I'll be back each day with the, the morning message, and then join you next week once again, Wednesday 6.30 for Sean the Baptist Live, in the beautiful season of Christmas, which just starts tomorrow night, and then goes for two more weeks. I'll be with you all through that. Merry last day of Advent and happy vigil of the Nativity tomorrow. God bless you all.